Good evening. It is good to be together. It's good to be able to gather, especially on a Sunday evening. What a wonderful and special time that is. If you would be opening your Bibles, we won't have hardly any slides tonight. I may have a picture I want to show you later on. But uh, so far as our text and etc., we're going to be studying out of Matthew, the fifth chapter, as a starting point, and then jump over to the 18th chapter if you want to be making your way to those two. And uh, read one quick passage by way of introduction in a moment out of Micah. We have had a wonderful, wonderful week. Uh, we appreciate so much the crew of, of men that gathered last uh, Saturday to clear out a way on the sidewalks for us to enter into our building. Uh, that was a, a, a great sacrifice on their part to get out and to shovel the snow, and we appreciate them doing that. We had another crew of men here last night in our building that worked several hours running wire into our new part of uh, our, that has, the construction that was recently finished with the adult education wing as uh, the wireless for our uh, internet service in there. Uh, it's just good to see men and women that are constantly willing to give their time and to give large chunks of their time uh, to, the, to the Lord's service. Another group that uh, you would be so proud of, our fifth graders. Let's see you raise your hand, fifth graders. Where are you? Raise your hands high that, that have helped. We have several fifth graders scattered around that. They gathered last night and cooked lasagna. They did. I saw them. They really cooked lasagna themselves. And then they went today, right after uh, the services, they went to Tent City in Lebanon, which is an RV park that the man that owns the RV park has let several individuals that would otherwise be homeless, he allows them to live there. And uh, they, they fed this group lunch today. And we appreciate their compassion, uh, their service, the time that they gave to this work. And the good that came out of that is God received the glory for it. And of course, many of you participated this morning in the outreach reorganization and the good that is done there uh, will obviously be greatly appreciated, but hopefully even more so God will receive the glory for that. And uh, there's just so much good that is constantly taking place. And let's make sure that each of us finds our place in that and, uh, and just do our best uh, to enjoy the life of serving God and to give Him all the glory. I know many of us are reading constantly various articles just to stay in tune to some things that may be happening in Haiti. Today an article caught my eye online that uh, was trying to describe the problem with the increased number of orphans. Many of you may have seen it on msn.com. And they were talking about it being one of the poorest nations in the world, how before the earthquake came, the problem with taking care of the orphans was already at a serious situation. And now with the earthquake, it, there's just multiplied time and time again. And one of the people that lived there tried to explain it to this American reporter in this particular way. She said, in Haiti, it's not like in the United States where people have jobs and homes and security, Miss Marty said. And if people have no security, how can they give security to their children? Think about that for a moment. If you don't have it, how could you ever offer it to your children? But isn't that almost true about anything? If you don't have it, 
how can you offer it? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Is it really possible for you and I to offer mercy to others in the way that God has designed for us to offer it if we have never yet ourselves received it? You know, when we read all throughout the Scriptures, what we see is that it is those that have received the mercy of God that are the best prepared, they are the most adequate in their life and in their heart to be able to extend that mercy to others. And of course, there is that warning that if we try to receive the mercy of God without being people that are merciful to others, God will snatch back His mercy. God will not honor it. And so tonight, as we continue thinking about the Beatitudes and things that transform our lives and, and it helps remove hurts and hang-ups and bad habits out of our life, one of the things that creates some of the most harm that one inflicts upon themselves while the whole time they're pointing their finger at somebody else is the lack of mercy, failing to forgive. And so tonight, I want you to be uh, real honest with yourself, if there's someone that you haven't forgiven, not to hear a sermon tonight of what a man would say about that subject because no man is any better than you, but what is it that God, who designed you, who knows what is best for you, a God who knows far above our fleshly nature a much higher calling and promises and hopes that can fulfill that's beyond our imagination, what if God Almighty is saying, I can relieve you from a burden that has been breaking your spiritual back. I can relieve you from a burden that maybe you haven't felt this relief in a long, long time in your life. Would you be willing to listen to Him? Would you be willing to accept that relief? I hope you will as we study God's plan of mercy. Before we do that, I would like to tell you something and then read you a passage out of Micah, the sixth chapter. First, I'd like to tell you that as I study this lesson this week, one of the things that kept coming to my mind is how we kind of like to have our cake and eat it too when it comes to this topic. In other words, if you and I were to think about times in our life where we really, really, really appreciated something, we could put receiving mercy into that category. Isn't that one of the most beautiful things? Is, is when we don't deserve goodness. We deserve punishment. We, we have made a mistake. We have hurt maybe ourselves, but, but we have hurt other people. And, and the last thing we deserve is mercy. But do you remember that feeling when someone extends it to you anyway? Isn't that beautiful? We like that part of the cake. But isn't it interesting how Satan is able to move things into deception in our minds so that as beautiful as we think mercy is when it comes time to extend it to someone else, it's not so pretty anymore, is it? We demand justice. They hurt me. I'm not going to forget that. 
I won't forget that as long as I live. I'll never forgive them for that. They must pay. If I don't make them pay, they'll continue to hurt people for the rest of their life. Someone has to put a stop to this and I'm going to be the one. Isn't it interesting when it's extended to us, mercy is so beautiful. And when God asks us to extend it to someone else, it all of a sudden becomes something that is almost the unthinkable. Friends, when you're driving to work tomorrow and you're meditating, just meditate upon that. How is it that Satan can take something that is so beautiful and deceive us in such a way as to make us believe when it's our turn to practice it, it's not so beautiful anymore? What I'd suggest to you, by righteousness' sake, it is that beautiful. It's that beautiful for you and it's that beautiful for the person that you owe it to. But Satan has a way of lying to us. In Micah, the sixth chapter, verse 8, very interesting passage in just one verse here. As Micah speaks on behalf of God to challenge the people of that day, but even us today, as he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Now pause there for just a moment. Probably need to come back sometime and do a sermon on this one verse. But how would you fill in the blank there? What does the Lord require of you? What if I say he's going to give you three things that he says, this is what the Lord requires of you. Isn't this a beautiful list? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He wants us to do justly. He wants us to treat people fairly. He wants us to be people that when we live our lives, others around will not constantly point their finger and be able to say, he or she constantly mistreats others. You better watch them. They'll rip you off. You better look after it. They're not honest. They're not a person of integrity. They will talk behind your back. The Lord says, no, I want you to do justly. But now notice as we have that challenge to do justly, not everybody's going to do justly. So he says, as you set that expectation for yourself, I also want to challenge you to remember that not everybody's perfect. You're not. The people around you's not perfect. So love mercy. Love mercy because you're going to need it because you can't always do the just thing. You're not perfect. Love mercy because you're going to need to extend that to others because the people in your life, they're not perfect either. And then finally, he concludes with what's going to help us with showing mercy to others, and that is live a life of humility. We do a much better job of offering mercy to others when we approach it from our knees. Humility, being very sincere in the fact that we do not believe that we're any better than anybody else. You know, there's a story where Jesus teaches about this in Matthew, the 18th chapter, that perhaps says it as clearly as any story. It's interesting, the chapter that this story is recorded. When we begin the 18th chapter, there's that argument about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that interesting, the passage we just left? He says, I want you to love mercy, and then he says, I want you to walk humbly. And now we're about to study a passage about living a merciful life, and and he begins this with them arguing who is the greatest. And then in the following verses, in verse 6 and following, he talks about not offending even the least, even our our children are the least one of these. And then in verse 10 through 14, he talks about where if there is a sheep lost, in humility we would value that soul and we would go after them. Instead of saying, 
without mercy, oh, they should just come back on their own. Or I knew they weren't ever going to be faithful anyway. To have a merciful mindset that says, I want to go and try to help them. I want to try to bring them back. And then there's that situation in verse 15 and following of what do we do when a brother sins against us? Now we're back to that topic of mercy again. Are we going to just turn our back on them and, and, and create a cold shoulder? Are we going to create a tall barrier that, that could be passed down from generation to generation? You ever seen that in families? Isn't that a sad thing in the church whenever a grandfather disagrees with a grandfather and the next thing you know the sons are disagreeing and the next thing you know the grandsons are disagreeing? Why does that happen? Because one generation failed to be merciful and the sin is being taught conditioned throughout the generations. That's not God's plan. God says right here in the 15th chapter, I want you to go to that individual and I want you to sit down and talk with them. Only the merciful would do that. And if they won't listen to one, bring two because he says there in verse 15, if this works, you have gained your brother. Think about the power in that word gained. That is like a financial term. It means you have lost them to sin, but you can gain them back. You see... People that are merciful realize that what is much more important than their feelings is the soul of another person and also their very own soul. And finally, if it has to be, take it to the church. And then he closes this in 20 by saying, if you're sitting down, if there's a couple of you sitting down and you're trying to resolve conflict in the way God would have it, in other words, this is an environment of mercifulness, he says, if you're doing that, God says, I'll be in the midst of that. We've studied that before and talked about how that probably is one of the verses that if you had to make a top 10 listing of verses that's quoted most often out of context, that would definitely be one of the verses that's most oftentimes in the church quoted out of context. I'm sure the Lord's in the midst of just a couple of us when we're worshiping, but that's not the setting for this verse. It's whenever you want to sit down in a merciful setting and say, I want to work out this disagreement. I want our souls to be right with God. Now with that mindset, we see Peter beginning a discussion in 21. And notice what Peter says. Peter came to Jesus and says to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now there was a saying that, that much of the Jewish customs back this up. This, this is recorded in commentaries and all as if this is just a certain fact. The rabbis would say, if you're sinned against once, forgive him. If he sins against you twice, forgive him. If he sins against you three times, he shall not be forgiven. That was the Jews' mindset. And what does Peter do here? Peter, you know, wanting to be that topper, wanting to be that one-up, well, he goes way more than one-up. He's probably putting himself on cloud nine. You know, you know how, how you're saying something and your only reason you're saying it is not because you really think you need to know more. You just want to say it so that you look real good in front of everybody. That's probably what Peter's doing here. It's the idea of, hey, I'm not only going to go more than twice than that three times that the Jews wouldn't even do to begin with. I'm going to go more than that and one-up that. Hey, Lord, how many times do you think we ought to forgive a brother? I'm going to say I'm willing to forgive seven times, that, that same brother, seven times. And Jesus' answer must have staggered them all in verse 22. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Uh, there's probably not some kind of righteousness in the number of 490. 
But it's the idea that that would have been so often to forgive the very same brother that that would have been staggering to them. Why? The Lord is trying to get them, He's trying to get us to understand, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What's your heart? What's your attitude? Are you quick to forgive? Or is it something that you allow to linger in your life and it ends up being a cancer spiritually in your own life? And so He tells this story in 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now today, that would probably be more than the equivalent of $10 million. We're talking about a sum that, that is just astronomical. You, you wonder, how could one servant ever become so indebted to one king? And so he asked this amount of money to him, but, but notice what else is going to come at stake. It's not just the fact now that he owes money, but look in verse 25. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. And the servant, therefore, pause here for just a moment. You think mercy's going to look good to him? Imagine that. His mistake now is not only going to cost him his freedom, but his wife, himself, and his children will never be bond servants long enough to pay off a debt of tens of millions. In other words, now he's taken the life of his family and enslaved them for as long as they live. How are you going to feel about that? Can you imagine how badly he must have wanted mercy at that time? Notice what he does in 26. He, he, he asked for something there had been no way he could have done. In 26, the servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I will repay you all. No, there, there's probably no way he could have repaid that debt. But still, he's pleading for mercy here. Look in 27. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. What does mercy look like? It's moved with compassion. I want to feel a little bit of what you feel. I want to better understand where you are. I don't want to point a finger, and I don't want to talk about just all the pain you've created in me. I want to be able to swing around in your shoes. I want to feel a little bit what you're feeling, and I'm going to release you from that, and I'm going to forgive you from that. Did he deserve it? Apparently, he didn't deserve that mercy. But here, this master shows us a picture of mercy. And how good that moment must have felt. This may not seem like a very adequate illustration for this, but I'll throw out to you what comes to my mind, and it's kind of humorous. I'm not trying to be humorous. It's just, it is what it is. But maybe you have something in your mind. I just want us to think about how good mercy feels when we're really in the clutches of dread of suffering consequences for what we've done. I don't really know why I did this, and I wouldn't advise any of our young people to do this. But in eighth grade, I played a little bit of chess, and I made a real bad mistake one day of deciding I would play chess during English. And the way the chairs were arranged, our chairs sat against the back of the, against the wall on the side wall. So as the teacher stood and talked, he's looking down the other rows, but ours were on the side. So it just seemed like a given. There's no way we would get caught. We kept the chessboard in the floor. And we looked at him until it was our turn for a move. And we studied the board over as if we were looking down at our desk. And 
we moved our man and pawn or whatever we we're moving and it seemed like a real smart thing for an eighth grader that wasn't so smart. Now, our kids today probably cannot appreciate what I'm about to say, but many of you can appreciate this. You know, in our day, there was always that one teacher in every department that all the other teachers leaned on because he was the one that could swing a mean paddle. And you knew that you didn't want to get licks from him. And it didn't matter if it was the biggest, strongest 18-year-old seniors. Nobody in our day, in the school I went to, would boast about certain teachers of, oh, I don't care if I get licks from him or not. That does, you know, the big talk didn't happen because they bring the baddest to their knees because that was the day before you could get arrested for it. And, <laughs> and I might add that there was always order in our classrooms and that you, as a general rule of thumb, you participated in class and it really kept a good structure in, in a school. It works. I'm living proof that it works. And, and so Mr. Ferris some way eyed the board and he blew up. It's the first time I heard a curse word from a teacher during school. And he looked in his drawer and then remembered that he had broken his paddle. And so he sent me to the principal's office not to get a paddling, but to retrieve a paddle because he wanted to be the one to do it. I was dumb enough at that age and throughout a lot of my high school that not a lot of things scared me. But I can tell you, I still remember the feeling in my knees as I walked to the office because I knew this was going to be a bad day. I knew that I would be, I knew I would be hurting for days, literally days. I walked into the principal's office and I said, I'm from Mr. Ferris's English class, and I'm supposed to retrieve the principal's paddle. The secretary looks over at the door and says, he's in a meeting, and we're not allowed to disturb him. And I said, well, I'll just wait. No, I didn't. I said, thank you. <laughs> and, and so I walked back to class. And, of course, he was not happy when I walked back empty-handed. I simply explained to them what he said. And uh, what was said, and he said, have a seat. He said, we'll deal with this after class. And he continued teaching. But he calmed down a little bit. Can you imagine the feeling I had whenever that class was over with? And he said, Shannon, come up here. And he got right in my face, and he chewed me out like I was a little dog, and then said, I'm going to let you go this time if you promise me you'll never play chess in class again. I said, you got my word. When I think of mercy, that was one time in my life that mercy felt real good. 
Now, I realize he wasn't happy about extending it. But friends, tonight, I want you to think about that day of judgment. I want you to think about when you know that there's a lake of fire and brimstone. You know that there is a place for Satan and his angels. You know that there are men and women that will be gnashing their teeth and will be crying out in eternal pain and darkness. And I want you to imagine how beautiful mercy is going to be as you hear something that you don't deserve, but you hear the Lord say to you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's not well done because we've never made a mistake. It's not well done because we deserve heaven. It's well done because he says, I'm going to extend mercy to you. I'm going to be gracious to you. Friends, there is nothing anybody can do to us on this earth that even compares to the mercy that's been extended to us. We have received the greatest gift of mercy that could ever be given. And then all the Lord is asking us to do is just be willing to extend it when the time comes to others. And why is it that it looks so beautiful coming from God? And how is it that Satan can convince us it's so wrong when it's our time to share it? You see, this man kind of illustrates us, and we'll make this point and close the lesson. Look, look at verse 28. This is the mindset we fall into. This is our human nature. So this man is so thankful. His wife and kids are not going to become slaves. He's going to have his freedom. He's been forgiven. Surely now he's going to go out and be merciful. No, look in 28. But that servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him. Now a hundred denarii would be the equivalent of like $10 today. Maybe not even that much. He's been forgiven tens of millions and now he sees a friend that, that owes him $10. He lays his hands on him and takes him by the throat. And he says, pay me what you owe. And so this fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me. I will pay you all. What he's asking is not a huge extension of mercy. It would be very possible for him to pay back his debt if he would just be patient. But we don't see that kind of mercy. Instead, what we see in 30, and he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants, now, so he's got fellow servants that's going to report back to the master, saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Do you notice that the fellow servants are the ones that go to the master and they say, there's something that really, really bothers us. They were grieving. You can imagine the master, well, servants, what is it? Go ahead and tell me. You wouldn't believe how that servant you forgave, how he treated a man the other day. Do you see how ugly 
life is when we don't share mercy. God didn't design our life to be that way. He designed us to be individuals that would receive the mercy of God and be willing to share it with others. You know, there's probably many reasons why if we opened up a discussion and said, why do you love Luke the 15th chapter? Why do you love the story of the prodigal son? And there'd be many right answers. But do you realize one of the best answers that could be given is because we see the mercy that the father offered. The son, just let me come back. I don't deserve to be a son. Just let me come back as a servant. And the father's mercy is full. It's, it's, it's genuine. It's satisfying. I want you back as a son. I, we're going to celebrate. My son that's dead is alive. You know, when Rembrandt painted the picture of the prodigal son, is considered one of Rembrandt's greatest pictures. There's something that he did that is very, very interesting. You see, when we come closer into his hands, you'll notice something. You're going to see that Rembrandt purposefully painted one of his hands on his son's shoulder as a masculine hand. And one of the hands on the other shoulder is a woman's hand. Why? Perhaps that was Rembrandt trying to urge each of us to realize that when the Lord told this story to say, I want to show you how merciful I am because the Father represented God, but Rembrandt reminds us that we are to be like God in that way. Every man and every woman should be willing to express such mercy to others. Our children need mercy. Our parents need mercy. Our neighbors need mercy. Our co-workers need mercy. Our brothers and sisters in Christ need mercy. You don't have a relationship that doesn't need you to extend them mercy. Every one of us in that sense needs to have the hands of God that would say, I'm going to forgive you. And when we do that, we relieve a huge burden off of our heart as well. You want to change your life? You want to bless your life? Receive God's mercy and always offer it to others. Tonight, if you've never received the mercy of God, you're missing one of the greatest gifts that's ever been offered to mankind. It's the greatest gift is to be saved. It's the Son of, of God offered to this earth. If you haven't been immersed into Christ as a believer, willing to repent of sins, why not tonight? Maybe you have done that and along the way, you've lost the way. You've taken your eyes off the Lord. You've allowed Satan to... to to put deception in your mind and pull you off the course. And maybe it's been your lack of mercy.
Maybe it's been a whole slew of other sins. But whatever it is, the beautiful news tonight is God is merciful. God will forgive you. God wants to bring you home. There's nobody that can show mercy better than God. And He wants to offer it to you. If we can help you in any way, come as we